Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tim Jackson er en original og anerkendt britisk historiker og økonom, som i 2009 udgav en rapport fra The Sustainable Development Commission, der egentlig var tænkt som en række anbefalinger til den britiske regering, men som endte med at blive en kæmpe bestseller for økologer, aktivister, intellektuelle og folk, der går op i den grønne omstilling over hele verden. Rapporten hed Prosperity Without Growth, og var et forsøg på at vise, hvordan man kunne have den samme levestandard på andre præmisser, hvordan vi kunne fortsætte vores økonomi på en måde, som ikke ødelagde jordkloden, men stadigvæk skabte stærke og solidariske samfund. Tim Jackson præsenterede rapporten for den daværende britiske premierminister Gordon Brown. Det var kort tid efter finanskrisen i 2007 og 2008, og på det tidspunkt var der ingen i The Labour Party, der kunne forestille sig, at man nu skulle gå ud og sige, at nu skulle vi gøre op med væksten. Tværtimod, det handlede om at komme i gang med væksten igen, hævdede Brown og den britiske regering. Det var selvfølgelig en nedslående besked for Tim Jackson, der havde troet, at han var i gang med at ændre verden. Det var han også. Det skete bare på en lidt anden måde. For bogen blev en klassiker for alle mulige andre, og den er i dag oversat til op mod 20 sprog, og jeg kan sige, at her på Dagbladet Information har vi skrevet enormt mange ledere, kommentarer, analyser og artikler, der er henvist til Prosperity Without Growth. Fordi det bogen var, det var, at den var et gennemført katalog over konkrete politikforslag til, hvordan man faktisk kunne lave den grønne omstilling. Det, som man ofte efterspørger fra grønne og aktivister, og det, man ofte anklager os alle sammen for ikke at have, det leverede Tim Jackson faktisk den her gang. Så derfor blev bogen vigtig for alle dem, der sagde, at det her det er altså ikke bare slogans og slagord for en klode i brand. Der er faktisk en plan for, hvordan man kan gøre det. Så på den måde blev bogen toneangivende i mange lande rundt omkring i verden, og har spillet en vigtig rolle til forskellige kop-arrangementer og er blevet brugt af alle mulige forskellige, der har haft behov for at mobilisere og overbevise om, at den grønne omstilling ikke bare er vigtig, den er også mulig, og der findes faktisk et realistisk program for den. Nu, 13 år senere, har Tim Jackson skrevet en ny bog, og den hedder Efter væksten, sådan skal vi leve efter kapitalismen. Bogen udkom på engelsk for kort tid siden og er allerede oversat til dansk på forlaget Hovedland. Og jeg vil selvfølgelig anbefale, at I køber den der, hvor I altid køber jeres bøger, nemlig hos boghandlerne. Så vi støtter, at der findes boghandlere i Danmark, og vi ikke støtter internetgiganterne. Det sjove er, at Tim Jacksons nye bog gør alt det, som han ikke gjorde i den første. Den handler overhovedet ikke om konkret politik. Der er ikke økonomiske forslag. Det er en stor kulturel fortælling om, hvordan verden kunne se ud, hvis vi havde omstillet os. Den handler ikke om nøgletal og reformer. Den handler om forestillinger om det gode liv, og den fortæller en masse historier om, hvordan det kan se ud. Han kalder det selv for at opbygge en tankeverden, der gør, at vi faktisk kan flytte ind mentalt og kulturelt i en verden, som ikke baserer sig på vækst. Grunden til, at jeg synes, det er sjovt, er selvfølgelig, fordi der er masser, der har skrevet den type bøger, som er kulturhistorie og kulturkritik, forskellige humanistiske udlægninger. De bliver altid bedt om at lave den konkrete politikpakke. Den har Jackson lavet, og nu laver han det modsatte. Og i den her samtale fortæller han, hvorfor han faktisk synes, at hele det kulturelle, det bløde, filosofiske, er lige så vigtigt og faktisk en forudsætning for det andet. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening to you 
Tim Jackson, who's with us from Surrey. Hello, Luna. It's good to be with you. God fornøjelse med samtalen. Now you have a new book out, Post Growth, and I should say that it's been translated into Danish, and the Danish title of the book is Verden efter væksten, livet i postkapitalismens tid. I highly recommend it, and I will say to our viewers and listeners that you'll meet a lot of the friends of information in that book, Wangari Matai, Hannah Arendt, Lynn Margulis, Emily, Emily Dickinson, and a Vietnamese monk that I didn't know, but that I find very, very <laughs> interesting. So I'll recommend it to everyone. But of course, the first question is, how does this new book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, for you relate to the old book? Is it a sequel or prequel even? <laughs> well, I think it's a little bit of both, Una. Um, as, as you said, the first book was very big on on policy and, and practical change, and, and that was because... Uh, I wrote it originally as a government report when I was working as an advisor to the UK government. And in some ways, it was very surprising that it had uh, the wide reach that it did because policy reports don't tend to have that kind of international acclaim. And and I think it was, it was, it was at the time, it was very definitely wanting to reach beyond that policy audience to reach out to a, to a wide group of people who are interested in this fundamental question of how it's possible to have an ever-expanding economy on a finite planet. And, and of course, lots of people who had for quite a long time been saying, actually, no, you know, that isn't going to work. And and when I joined the Sustainable Development Commission, which was this advisory body to governments, you know, I sat down very early on with the chair of that commission, Jonathan Porritt, And we said, you know, what are you going to do now that you're economics commissioner on this commission? And 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 very quickly we came upon this kind of project of revisiting that conundrum, that conundrum of an ever-expanding economy on a finite planning, of setting out the arguments, of exploring the philosophical basis for it, and of leading government towards policy, because that's what our policy reports did. They were recommendations to policymakers with things that they could do on Monday if they so chose to do them on Monday. And Prosperity Without Grace was full of things that you could do on Monday or even not even wait till Monday. You could do it right now. And a couple of things that were really fascinating to me about the reception that Prosperity Without Grace had. And, and one of them was that it did not fall on receptive ears in government. It was written as a policy report to government policymakers, but actually they were the last people who wanted mm. to hear it, even though actually it had all those recommendations for policies. That questioning of growth was like you know a shibboleth. You, you shall not question this. It's almost a taboo subject. And, and of course, it, it also had something to do with the time at which that report was launched because it was launched originally. The report was launched you know, in the throes of the financial crisis just at the point when governments were trying to kickstart growth again you know weren't really that concerned about the finiteness of the planet <laughs> they were concerned about the instability of the financial system so that you know that was the first lesson it's not so easy to just tell government even if you get one one policymaker said to me at one point tim i really like prosperity without growth the logic is impeccable and the politics is impossible <laughs> and, and that to me, you know, it really summed it up. You know, I've done my very best with all the arguments. I've laid out all the evidence. I've done the, I've, I've crunched the numbers. I've produced the policies. 
and no one is going to listen to it. You know, that was lesson number one, if you like. It's not so easy. That was a Labour government, right? I think Gordon was Brown was time. Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, and you would have thought, you know, a left-leaning government. They had done a lot in terms of sustainability. We had the first UK Sustainable Development Plan. We had a really proactive follow-up plan, a sustainability plan, which was was talked about all over the world, actually, and 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 in which the Sustainable Development Commission worked very hard. And I myself you know, went out talking about that as an economics commissioner on the Sustainable Development Commission, I would go to places and talk about the UK's sustainability plan because it was very progressive. But this was a thought world too far, even for a progressive left-leaning government. And so that, you know, that was a harsh message that you can be as, uh, you, you, you know, you can you can get the arguments right. You can basically be shown to be true. You can lay out all the facts and you can still make zero headway through that policy process. Now, the second lesson, and, and in a way it's the, almost the complete opposite, is that that book had, you know, an extraordinary response from a very wide range of audiences. And it wasn't just the usual suspects. It, it was very humbling to turn up at meetings and find that you were face to face with some of the people, some of them from Denmark, who had been part of that original limits to growth debate. And they would say, thank you, you know, thank you for doing this and bringing this back again. It's time that it was brought back again. And at the same time, I would be, I would go to meetings, again, ones in Denmark that come to my mind, Copenhagen during the, the climate change summit in 2009, where a young generation would literally flock to the lectures that I was giving and, and sit on the steps and behind me on the stage as I was talking about it, because they hadn't heard people talking about this, particularly, you know, economists talking about an economy without growth. It was completely foreign, alien, and yet somehow sort of exciting. So, and, and, and in between that, you know, the kind of octogenarians who had been there for decades talking about this and the young generation who'd never heard an economics that wasn't fixated on growth. There was also interest from, you know, literary groups, religious societies, industrial societies, businesses, and perhaps most strikingly of all, financial sector organisations. Hmm. And 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 that was, you know, that really took me by surprise. The breadth of that took me by surprise. And the variety of different kinds of audiences took me by surprise. And, and then, you know, if you like, fast forward 10 years-ish. And I, I had a conversation actually um, with a with a young man who kind of had read Prosperity Without Grace and said, look, this is really, really fantastic, but it needs to get outside of the policy audience. It needs not to be a policy document. It needs to be something which explores these issues because actually they're things that everybody, fundamentally everybody is interested in. What kind of society we want? How do we organize our economy to get there? What are our, our central core values and how do we express those? And, and that's really where Postgres came from. It came from, and, and in a sense, it was, you know, it was that learning that you can't just put policies on the table and expect people to pick them up you have to somehow fertilize the soil in which you try to plant those seeds and you have to bring people along you have to bring this wider arguments these deeper arguments to a wider audience and that makes it a more philosophical a more 
literary and more poetic project than the one that started its life as a report to the UK government. It, of course, raises a very, very interesting question that we've been discussing a lot here in the newspapers, which is what kind of ideas do end up changing the world? Or, mm. you know, you have a book that you also mentioned, like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which came out in 62, I think. And it's it's more like a poetic book, actually. It ended up with an enormous political impact. But I think it was eight or nine years later that the political impact came. It started the environmental movement in, in, in America. The, this poetic book, which is still today a very, very good book, book to read. And, and then you have other books like Piketty's works that just came out and instantly were, were, were picked down. When it comes to growth, I always ask myself, who's the adversary here? I mean, <laughs> because when you talk, I'm sure if you talk to Gordon Brown and he's not in power, that he will say, yes, of course, we cannot keep growing on a, a planet with finite resources. And if you look over the years between the first book and the second book that we're talking about, you know, you've seen the Sarkozy Commission with brilliant economists and French presidents saying, well, we, we don't need, GDP is the wrong measurement for our society's target. So who are the adversaries actually to, to bring in about this change? I know this is a big question. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could, I could answer that in a very sort of um, trivial way, I suppose, and say it's economists. <laughs> um, but that isn't quite right either, because that that knowledge of the failings of the GDP, for example, that's actually very well known in economics and amongst mainstream economists, and it's and it's began to be quite well known amongst politicians. So David Cameron, who was a Tory prime minister after the um, Gordon Brown government used that quote from Robert Kennedy about, um, you know, the GDP measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And, and that's why we're going to focus on having well-being accounts. We're going to measure some different things. Sarkozy Commission came along and said, we're going to measure these things differently. And the OECD has a beyond GDP program. The system of national accounts has a 2025 program to revise what national accounts look like. And that debate about the nature of the economy, I think one of the things that successfully happened, and it happened in the 50-something years since Robert Kennedy made that speech in 1968, was that it set in motion a kind of, you know, if we can measure it better, things will all turn out right in the end. And of course, it is true that we have to measure the right things. And it is true that if we measure the wrong things, we can lead ourselves and society in the wrong direction. But it seemed to me, particularly when I went back to that speech that Kennedy gave, that he was saying something deeper, that there is something more in the critique of growth than the measurement of the GDP and the measurement failures of the GDP. And it is about the vision that we have as a society. It's about the values that we hold dear in capitalism. And actually, that's why the subtitle of the book is as it is, because actually increasingly, One of the things that I felt in the years, perhaps, since Prosperity Without Was Growth was published and looking at the intransigence of policy was that the structures of capitalism themselves, as they are laid down in our society, laid down our institutions, but also laid down in our own norms, our ways of thinking, that these are things that we have adopted too easily 
and forgotten how to critique. And so, you know, to answer your question very simply, you could say the opposition is capitalism, but capitalism is us in, <laughs> in a very real way. It's it's not just politics. It's not just economics. It's not just institutions. It's also the ways that we've internalized all those things in our world, in our thought world, in our culture. And, and, and so getting out of that, and again, it was a reason really for that philosophical depth that I chose for this later book. Getting out of that is a task in which we have to engage with each other, with the concepts, with our assumptions, and with the challenges of thinking about how a post-growth world might work, how a post-capitalist world might work. Yeah, and I think we definitely, I think that's part of the beauty of the book. It's like human beings, we're an instrument and capitalism just play a few on a few of the strings. And some of the others, maybe we haven't forgotten them, but but we we don't value them sufficiently. And then comes the pandemic and we see, well, we have all the care works. And I think part of the beauty of your book is that you show there are strings to this human instrument that we actually don't use and don't appreciate sufficiently. And then there are other strings. It's not that competition in itself is wrong. It's just not for, for everything. Uh, I, I wonder if that's part of why you go to philosophy and poetry this time to kind of widen the horizons of what human societies could be like. Yes, it is. And, you know, I think the difficulty with when we stay in the kind of the left brain world of economics and models and policy and policy instruments and frameworks and institutions, we don't allow that creativity through. And, and in the same token, we actually devalue that creativity. We devalue a lot of the work actually that happens in society through our right brain poetry and literature and uh, religion and 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 we also, to some extent, we devalue that very basic layer of, of work, which is about reproduction and care rather than production and productivity. And so, you know, that reaching for different ways to see what it means to be human. Again, it was to some extent, it was inspired by some of those people that I talk about in the book. And in particular, that speech that, that, that I start the book with, and it's why I started, it's quite well known to many environmentalists and, and many who have looked at the, the economics of the GDP. It's, a, it's now a kind of poster speech. But beyond that simple critique of the GDP and of growth itself is a reaching for a different vision of what politics should be like and what its job should be in society. And, and that I think, particularly at the time when I began writing that, when you know we just left the EU and Trump was still in power in the US, that the politics had been taken over by sharpshooting fake facts that, that had distorted our world and undermined those values. And I think it was, you know, it was in part, I think, that in order to reestablish those values, you have to look to where they're coded. And quite often where they're coded is in is not in our, you know, institutional legislation, but in our poetry and in our arts and in our thinking about the world and in our conversations with each other and in our relationships to each other. And, and those were things that then became, and I, and I feel still are, enormous resources for us in thinking about the kinds of change that we need to be engaged in. I also get the sensation reading your book that 
You go back to Hannah Arendt's work, uh, Vita Activa, which is was called Human Condition when it came out in English, I think it's from 57 or 58. And you have this Robert Kennedy speech from 68 that it's kind of showing that there was always also another way of thinking about society. That when we look back, we, we look back from the point of politics that we're in today and the economics we're in today. So we see all the previous faces as kind of leading us to where we are now, but you're kind of showing us there was always also another kind of reflection. Is that a correct reading? Uh, absolutely. I, I see it. I, or to be more precise, I began to experience it as I was <laughs> writing the book as a kind of undercurrent, you know, a kind of a counterculture whose roots. And I mean, you talk about the 1950s and the 1960s, but I also have Lao Tzu in there, um, who was a Chinese sage from a couple of millennia before the Christian era. So, you, you know, and, and you can trace some of this counterculture, some of this underlying stream of thinking about ourselves right back over millennia to the before the modern period and you can see it arise again even in this even in the throes of some very conventional thinkers like john stuart mill who was one of the founding fathers of economics and i talk about one of the incidents in his life when he comes to a kind of a personal crisis about the entire economic project because he thinks maybe it's just missing the point and 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 it, it plays itself out in his life as as a mental health crisis and so you know understanding actually how this how these currents these underlying streams of thought have been there and have emerged in different places in different ways at different times, I think what that did to me, it, it made me feel that without consciously having set out to do it, I was trying to convene the resources that we have at our disposal through this breadth of thinking from some quite inspirational people, Wangari Matai and, and yes, Hannah Arendt in relation, what she talked about in particular in relation to work is so foundationally exciting in a world in which we have just relegated work to paid employment in a capitalist economy with very little in terms of meaning or sense associated with it and and that you know that to me was was enormously powerful it was a very powerful way of of talking about this counterculture talking about this, this spring of ideas from which we can think differently about ourselves. There are two ways of, of looking back at these ideas and, and this trajectory of, of thinking and writing poetry and philosophizing. And that one is saying, well, uh, Robert Kennedy said it all in 68 and we didn't listen. And then came limits to growth in 72. And James Hansen, he came to Congress in the 80s and Kohalem uh, Bondan wrote her report in 87 or 88, and we had the real summit that, you know, we've known all along, but it seems that, and, and people, actually, it's not just that people in power are stupid and ignorant, you know, it's always a bad ex explanation that we've known all along, we've had the, the knowledge, the, the ideas, and they keep, they keep losing, and we don't see any trace of that, and that makes you very pessimistic, and then you can't make a newspaper. The other way of seeing it is that this was always a very, very complex battle with a lot of power interest, but also a lot of different kinds of progress that you wanted to achieve. When you look back at these, how, how do you keep up the optimism and, and keep the pessimism away? 
Well, I like I like the second way that you described. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that's the better one, to be honest. I mean, I yeah, I mean, this is an occupational hazard, and I see people, you know, people I've worked with for decades who kind of who who almost burn out because it's a very very difficult thing, particularly when you're fighting battles the whole time. Um, and I do think, you know, I used to kind of say, I used to, my answer to this used to be along the lines of. Um, um, Antonio Gramsci, who, who once talked about pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, that it's an act of will to be optimistic. And to me, that kind of aligns with the kind of ideas around sports psychology where, you know, it, I don't know if you know anything about this, but it's oh, just, I do. You imagine, you know, you're in a football game and it's the last five yeah. minutes and you're, you know, three, two down. We all know games in which that has been yes. turned around at the last minute by a belief, a, an optimism of the will, in a sense, and I, so I always kind of, you know, I always, I think, I think it's a good idea. I don't, I'm not saying I don't believe in that anymore. I think it still works, but it, you also need to resource it. You need to nourish it. You need to be nourished through it because you can't sustain an optimism of the will against a pessimism of the intellect and the world around you. <laughs> so, and, and in, another, in a sense, that's partly where this poetry comes in because it speaks to a different part of us. And when I began to look at those poets, I then came across this wonderful poem from yeah. Emily Dickinson, where she talks about hope. Hope is a thing with feathers that flutters in the human soul and sings the song without the words and never stops at all. And, you know, what she's saying, what she's saying in a way is that the hope is, it's it's good, it's interesting, it's never really going to abandon you. So maybe we shouldn't worry about it too much, because we're always going to be able to have hope until the point we don't. But actually, and, and this was something, again, that Aaron said, you know, if we don't worry too much about that hope, but focus on action, yes. then that action is what sustains us. So the op- opposite of of despair is not hope, but action. And and I really, you know, I really think that's a that's a very powerful idea. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can continue to hold it. It's, you still have that problem of of not burning out and of holding on to something. And and that I think is where this nourishment through creativity and the arts and our relationship to nature and our relationship to each other becomes so important because it's part of what allows us to continue to take that action and stave off despair whatever is happening to that you know bird that perches in the human soul um because that's not the relevant point at the end of the day the relevant point is our nourishment of our ability to continue to act for good in the world yeah, and I think that's where your book comes in really as an important inspiration because you have some positive pictures of places we like to be, states we like to be in, like, you know, this understanding of work in Haran, sustaining a world and building a, a, a common world of, of objects. So, so and I think your book is tremendously helpful there. Another question that, that we discuss a lot here in the newspaper, and I spoke to Kate Rayworth about a month ago here about it, it's the question of being for or against growth. It's the worst thing to write editorials about because it's you very easily feel that you let down people in other parts of the world that need growth. Uh, when, when, when you say, I am against 
growth as a phenomenon or you're, I'm universally against growth. You very often feel that it's a that you write it from a very privileged position and you look at what do I know, Mali, Ethiopia, South Africa, you look at, and, and of course they need, they, they, they need growth. On the other hand, I think you could say that where we are, we must stop growth in order for them to have a little space to, to grow. And we have so much that so we should, but it's difficult. How, how do you see this dilemma with the social aspects of growth? And of course, uh, the baseline finite resource on a finite planet. Mm. Well, you know, I, th I think in psychotherapy, love and hate are, are kind of quite closely related to each other. So, you know, loving growth and hating growth are really two sides <laughs> of, of, of the same thing, which is a kind of obsession with growth. And so, you know, I tend, I tend whenever I can to kind of nuance that language to, well, first of all, I think to recognize that there's a real dilemma there and that for the poorest yes. people in the world, they are in a different place in relation to that dilemma. And I did quite a lot of the statistical work of that in Prosperity Without yes. Growth, you know, looking at where, where growth really does matter, where it has a real return in terms of improved prosperity, better life expectancy, decreased infant mortality, more participation in education, greater happiness. And, and it all happens in the poorest countries in the world. As you increase incomes there, it makes a difference. And I, I've always been very struck by that evidence. And, and then that after a certain point, those returns begin to diminish. And sometimes, you know, they are negative returns at a certain point. And, and that, you know, that is that both it, it tells you that we shouldn't be too obsessed with saying you can't have growth in the same way as we shouldn't be too obsessed with saying that you must have growth. We, we have to, in a sense, almost forget about the growth word if we want to make sensible policy at this point. And if we want to escape from the cultural bounds that we live in. And, and that's why in post-growth, I describe it as a kind of the myth of growth. It's a, it's a cultural myth and cultures are always blind to their own guiding myths. So it becomes very difficult if we're continually locked into a growth, no growth debate, it becomes difficult to focus on the things that we do need to, to direct ourselves out of that cultural myth and towards the goals for a good society. And, and I think when in, in Prosperity Without Growth, I pitched not only that evidence about where growth does make a difference, but also what I called the dilemma of growth. Mm. Because we have become so fixated on growth, because we have built our economics around growth, because we have created financial systems that are predicated on growth because we have used those financial systems to deliver care to our most vulnerable elderly citizens in society we become growth dependent so we live in a growth dependent society even as we recognize that growth has these failings and has these diminishing returns in the richest economies in the world and and to me that's a sort of place of you know, if, if, you're, if you're locked in a gross, no gross debate, you're in a place of blame. You're, you're, you're in the kind of game of blaming the conventional economists or blaming the anti-capitalists. If you recognize it from the beginning as a dilemma, you're in a much more fertile yeah. place because it gives you the intellectual creativity to say, well, how did that happen? Where's the, where's the institutional machinery 
which has made us gross dependence. What are the regulatory factors? What are the incentives? What are the social factors? What are the habit habits, the just simple habits of, of behavior and action, which have locked us into this gross dependency? And so to me, that idea of of looking at a growth dilemma, which is one of the fundamental ideas in prosperity without growth, is a way of freeing ourselves from that kind of love-hate relationship, which can be uh, sort of toxic and unproductive. And it also, I think, leads to another, what should I say, mood of the protest movement, that you're not just angry at somebody. Anger can be extremely mobilizing. But I also, because we're, we have this is such a huge transition that we must go through together and we must help each other and i know i sound like a hippie but you know i i feel that maybe anger won't help us too much we can be angry but we must channel different emotions and we must channel different approaches to each other yeah i i have not seen a hippie with a shirt and tie on Um, <laughs> doing a Zoom interview with a, a British academic before, so um, I, I don't think you're in much danger. I mean, I, I I think you're, you know, I think you're, I think that analysis is is right. You know, the, to see it as a, okay, I'm, I'm just going to temper this a little bit. I think sure. basically, I think basically, it's right that we have to see it as a collective task, and that collective task is cultural. And so what we need to create is the spaces where it's possible to have a robust dialogue and to have that dialogue in a way where mutual trust can lead us towards solutions and different ways of thinking. And, and, and that's that's very much the ethos of, well, it was the ethos of prosperity without growth as well, but it's even more the ethos of post-growth is creating that space in a more creative way. Now, My reservation about this, and, and it creeps through a little bit in post-growth, didn't really creep through at all in prosperity without growth, is that we should also probably recognize that there are people in the world who have more than their fair share. There are people who take more than their fair share. There are people who, who use and abuse power in ways which undermine humanity. And we're seeing examples of that right now, of course. And that we should not, therefore, even that while we take this, you know, lovely forgiving position, which a fun, it's a it's a dilemma, guys, that we have to sit down and figure out. And as long as we're nice to each other, then everything will come out well in the end. And recognize that there are also forces which are quite consciously in some times and in some places trying to undermine the legitimacy of that process and the ability of that process to work to the benefit of everyone. And that means also, of course, that there are some people who are pressed. You know, the moment we forget that actually, even in the richest economies in the world, in the UK, for example, you know, 40% of households having to access food banked at some point in the last two years, an enormous 40%. explosion. It's, it's enormous, you know, it's this kind of explosion of household poverty in the face of, uh, you know, obviously unprecedented conditions, but also conditions in which the richest people in the world over the last two years got extraordinarily more rich. And so, you know, and that is, yeah. that is a place which feeds and seeds uh, an angry response. And it is a place which I think is dangerous because I think 
You know, not that I'm saying that that anger is unjustified. Of course, it isn't unjustified when you see people who are not only becoming richer, but rewriting the rules of the game so that they will always stay richer. And the downside of that is people living in abject poverty who cannot afford to think about climate change or the environment, but are very often doing more for it than the richer people who have created those conditions. So, you know, that is something that when you see conditions like that, you would expect to see anger. And we yeah. see some of that anger. And if it's channeled productively and not through violence, I think that anger has a role to play in how we find ourselves working through these situations but we also have to be aware i think of the dark side of that anger and the way that it can transform itself into violence and and we also have to i think hold on to as the core of of our process of of addressing these challenges we have to hold on to this to the idea of a civil democratic participatory politics and in a sense you know that's another of the chapters in post-crisis, that the fight for that civil participatory democratic politics sometimes has to proceed through civil disobedience. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good and, and thought-provoking answer because you're absolutely right that when you look at the levels of inequality, and if you look at these lockdowns that we've been through and I think we were all you're also hopeful about them in the book and I think we can still say that it was possible to shut something down that we thought couldn't be shut down and there are still some taboos that have been broken but then afterwards you see how the dividends and capital they kept growing and how there were there was no redistribution redistribution of of power and you saw that how the suffering and how how the gains that were distributed during these lockdowns. And yeah, it makes me really, really angry. And I think you're right. We must be both Greta Thunberg, shame on you, and um, Elizabeth Watuti, who says, please, please open your heart. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and interesting, that's where, to me, in the book, at least, in the narrative yeah. of the book, is where Thich Nhat Hanh came in, because, you know, he was born in yes. Vietnam, in the middle of Vietnam, in the emergence of the of a war between the north and the south and he tells that he told this story you know when when he was in the u.s campaigning for peace you know where where do you come from and he said well if i said the north they would think i was the enemy if i if he said the south they would think i was agreed with all the u.s policies there and so he said i'm from the middle and which happened to be true geographically but it was also the position that he held in his life and and that that idea and and he embodied many of those principles of civil disobedience but but non-violent civil disobedience uh, throughout his life and became a sort of exemplar for for a different way of confronting what otherwise could turn into a sort of destructive form of of anger and he has a very interesting uh, he has a very interesting understanding of power the way he explains, can you share that with us? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of, it, it only dawned on me after a while and really as I was writing, but I'd read Thich Nhat Hanh for a long time and I read a book called The Art of Power a long time ago. And The Art of Power is kind of basically contrasts two very different kinds of power. One is the one that we know about, which is basically power over 
people and things and the accumulation of wealth in order to exert that power and the accumulation of that power in order to achieve that wealth. And he and he talks about how in the art of power, he talks about how this is, you know, this is so ingrained in Western capitalism and, and in particular in Western consumerism that we're all, we can't see beyond that idea of that that particular kind of power. And and he contrasts that with a power um, which actually comes what what it start i mean it starts from within buddhism because of course he was a zen buddhist monk and according to buddhism you know everything in the world is suffering and this is a very interesting that's a very interesting starting point because that's also in a way that's the starting point of capitalism that that you know everything is suffering unless you can climb to the top of the pile so that you're not the one that's suffering and so power in that in that configuration you know the world is suffering so i'm going to compete as hard as i can to win in the struggle for existence so that i'm not the one that's suffering and that's power that will get me there that's you know that's capitalism's view of power and rights and moral progress and almost everything that we hold dear in western society and and buddhism comes along and it says well that all the world is suffering you can never escape it and the more that you try to escape it the worse the suffering gets so you shouldn't try to escape it you should turn towards it and in turning towards it you find this different power this power inside us as human beings, as living beings, as spiritual beings, that is not material, it's not materialistic, and it's not impermanent in the way that material power is in the capitalist conception. So in other words, you know, capitalism and Buddhism, looking at this question of power and looking at the question of suffering, start in the same place, but they move in completely different directions and and he and his life really embodied this other vision of power and the power is the power of being on the path which is addressing with compassion the suffering that we see in the world around us and it's it's a path towards suffering rather than the path towards escape which is roughly how capitalism sees it and i was i was just kind of intrigued by this and and in the middle of this in the middle of this action, you know, he, he also says, you know, it's not just about giving up and going to meditate in a, in a monastery somewhere. That's not what we're talking about. He had this idea of engaged Buddhism. And in the middle of this engaged Buddhism is the politics of civil disobedience, of nonviolent civil disobedience. So right in the middle of his philosophy, and he's talking through those years with Martin Luther King Jr., and he's reading Thoreau, and and he's he, you know in and through Thoreau he's accessing political democratic thought back for several millennia, and what you have there is a kind of sense that when you look at power itself in this way, we have to consider the position that we are within parliamentary democracy as a solution to power, as unfinished and incomplete. We have to go back to it and ask again what a real power means in this uh, very different world that he's created and how we can substantiate it and how we can ensure and hold our governments to account in relation to it. And that holding to account comes for him, as for Martin Luther King, 
as for Thoreau, as for John Locke, actually, originally, with this idea of civil disobedience. So it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a passive, I, you know, my real powers inside, man. You know, now we're really in the hippie land where everything, everything goes because I am, you know, the center of all power. It's nothing. It's, it is so sophisticated, both in seeing the impermanence of the material world and the the glitter and the bling that is created by consumerism and materialism, and also in seeing the reality of political participation in a common project. And that's that's why to me these these you know these little these little nuggets of these insights, this richness of these insights is so powerful. It's not about, you know, kind of saying we're all going to go off and be Buddhist monks. It's about recognizing that these insights tell us something very very profound about our own culture and 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 expose to us what we have missed about our own humanity oh i think that's a beautiful beautiful place to stop and i will say also that i thought when i was reading the book that it was absolutely the right way to also go beyond the western canon because in order to solve this climate problem we must leave we cannot just stick to our western ideas and our own history we must open it and i think you did that so brilliantly here and in your book which i recommend to everyone thank, thank you, you tim jackson for your inspiration and for talking to us tonight it's been a pleasure thanks luna Det var så min samtale med Tim Jackson, og som sagt er bogen udkommet på dansk under titlen Efter væksten på forlaget Hovedland. I næste uge har vi en særlig udgave af langsomme samtaler. Jeg har talt med den amerikanske professor Michael Sandell til et videnskabsseminar, som Dagbladet Information holdt sammen med Københavns Universitet, som skulle fejre forskningens rolle i det 21. århundredes demokratier. Men det, jeg taler med Sandell om, det er, når vi nu har set, at forskere har taget så grueligt fejl i forhold til finanskrisen og i forhold til globaliseringen, kan man så bebrejde folk, at de ikke har tillid til eksperter i dag? Og hvad skal klimaforskere og pandemiforskere og alle mulige andre forskere stille op med, at folk ikke har tillid til dem, fordi der er nogle økonomer, der tog fejl tidligere i det 21. århundrede? Det gode ved Michael Sandell, det er, at han tager hele kritikken af eksperter, forskning og universiteterne meget alvorlig, og ikke bare tager den alvorligt til noget, man skal gå i dialog med. Han mener, at den er berettiget. Og det, vi taler om i næste uge, det er, når kritikken af forskere, ekspertise og universiteter er berettiget, hvordan kan vi så have en samtale på højeste niveau, som forhindrer, at jorden bliver ved med at brænde? Den her samtale var klippet af en af Dagbladet Informations allerbedste venner, nemlig Anne Pilegaard Petersen, der igen har gjort, hvad hun kunne for at sætte de brokker, jeg har kastet ud, ud til hende, sammen til en ordentlig samtale, som jeg håber, I har haft lige så stor fornøjelse at lytte til, som jeg havde at lave den. Vi høres ved i næste uge.